Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom He has given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So reads the Word of God and... I honestly believe that much of what we spoke about in introduction to the glorious gospel in Romans 3, 21 to 26, we could say again here in preparation for processing Romans 5, 1 to 11. It's an astounding passage of Scripture. Let's dig into it and see what the Lord has for us in it. Noting that the bottom line charge this morning is just to drink in some of the richest fruits of the gospel that we should receive by faith and that for those who have trusted Christ as Savior, they have received by faith. We read from Psalm 118 earlier that final and climactic expression of a section of the Psalms that's called the Egyptian Hallel, the Egyptian Praise, Psalms 113 to 118, which the Jews would sing each year as part of their Passover meal. Two of those Psalms before dinner, four more after dinner, celebrating their exodus out of Egypt. The Egyptian Praise, praise for the salvation of God, the greatest demonstration of God's saving power and purpose that had been presented thus far in human history, the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, through the Red Sea on dry ground, through the wilderness, despite 40 years of wanderings, 
because of their sin and doubt, and then into the promised land where they slowly, ineffectively, because of their sin again, took possession of much of the land, left much of it unconquered. The Egyptian Hallel is the section of the Psalms that give praise to God for His salvation. So the crowds erupted in praise as Jesus entered Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. They erupted in praise because he was intentionally awakening images of the promised Messiah as he rode on the back of a donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9. As they were looking for words to worship God in praise of his king's entry into the city, they also used the words of Psalm 118 to pour out their hearts in praise. Mark records, those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Psalm 118 gives us the translation of that. Save us, O Lord, save us now. And then it goes into what is quoted directly in the Gospels. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Israel's king had arrived. On that day, as the initial Holy Week began, there was no limitation or lack expressed with regard to Jesus' reign as king. The people were in a virtual frenzy celebrating it. And what they were calling out for as they spread their cloaks and palm branches on the way before Jesus, what they were calling out for as they said, Lord, save us now. What they desired most deeply was exactly what we just read together from Romans 5. That's the salvation that had been promised. That's the salvation that they longed to receive. They had a certain set of ideas about what it might look like. But they were quite mistaken on what they thought would bring about that salvation. But it is. No mistake what they truly wanted. As I said just a few moments ago, I think the contrast between their desires and God's plan was as stark and clear as the contrast between the palm branches and the donkey. But that's for this evening, that's not for this morning. This morning, we just want to look into this salvation that the people of God were longing to receive. Let's identify eight blessings of this salvation, and they're listed for you in a rather long outline this morning. Please don't get nervous. They're a phrase apiece. 
But there's eight things that we have isolated. We could look at the passage in a somewhat different way and get nine or even ten or eleven. We could get six or seven and put them together. We could do this in different ways, but I just want to spotlight eight that I think are going to help us appreciate what Paul is giving to the Roman church at this stage on the heels of having established their need for salvation, clarified the gospel and how it works, given them a couple of illustrations from Old Testament heroes, Abraham and David, on how it works and how it's always been by faith. Now he's turning his attention back to the justification and saying, here's what it accomplishes for you. Here's some of the fruit of it. Here's what you receive. I heard a great set of messages when I was a student at Moody Bible Institute. The very first one was preached at a Founders Week or a Spiritual Emphasis Week, I don't recall, when I was a freshman. Dr. E.V. Hill was in from his church preaching a sermon entitled, What Do You Have When You Had Jesus? What do you have when you have Jesus? And he posed that question. And he had 12 things, not eight. And he got through the first three, and then he stopped and said, that's all the time I've got. You're going to have to invite me back. So over the next several years, he came back and gave us three at a time until he finished his, what do you have when you have Jesus? But man, what a... um, What a reminder that is that the richness of what we receive in the gospel cannot be captured briefly in just a few words. Paul is doing his best here in Romans 5 under the inspiration of the Spirit. And we're going to look quickly through these eight things that are listed. It's from the first one here in verse 1 that we get today's title. The title could have been any one of these eight or some condensation or combination of putting them all together, but we've just titled this message, Peace with God. When we have peace with God, here's what comes along with it. My friends, if you have peace with God, may this stoke the flame of your passion for Him this morning. If you do not have peace with God... May the Spirit of God use this to awaken you to the salvation that is yours, available to you in Christ, if you will but receive it. It's from the first one that we get today's title. Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Justification by faith is that which has already been accomplished, that's already been covered in Paul's letter, though he'll find it necessary in the middle of this passage, and we've called it an interlude. He'll find it necessary in the middle of it to to go back into that and give a summary picture of the gospel again. But we've been justified by faith. Having been justified by faith, having these illustrations just given to us in Abraham and David, we have peace with God. God, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. H.C.G. Mole wrote that peace with God literally means peace toward God. But Paul's meaning is actually the opposite of what this could initially sound like. Mool understand that, understood that, and he explained. We're going to use 
a, a, a paragraph of quote from him over the next few minutes, intersecting back and forth with it. But he wrote that peace with God literally means peace toward God, but that peace toward God sounds like it's something from us toward God when actually it's exactly the opposite, he continues on to explain. Moore wrote, in view of him, in view of God, as regards God, he said, we possess security and calm of acceptance. That's how he summarized the piece. In view of him, or as regards God, we possess the security and calm of acceptance by him. Practically, he said, this phrase thus equals... He has admitted us to peace. We have peace with God. He has admitted us to peace. We might say that a little bit differently. He has welcomed us into peace. Think of gaining admittance into a concert or a movie or some kind of event. You've been granted entry. He's welcomed us into his peace. He is at peace with us, Mool continues. The whole previous argument shows that his reconciliation to us, not ours to him, is the main point here. In other words, the justice of forgiveness on God's part, not the yielding of the will on man's part, which is also an all-important thing, is not directly in view here. So it's not yet our change of disposition toward God that's in view, but still it's God's toward us. Yet we're spotlighting a new facet of that here. We're not just celebrating again that God has put Jesus forward as a propitiation to absorb his just wrath against our sins so that he can remain just even as he declares a peace treaty with all those who trust Christ as Savior, we're not just going back and reminding ourselves of what propitiation means. Now he's adding the sense that God would be unjust if he didn't declare peace with all those who trust in Christ as Savior. Since we have been justified by faith in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, we enter into a state of peace with God. God's wrath has been absorbed. God has been appeased in his anger, just anger against sin, and we enter into that peace. Mool continues, when he speaks peace, there is a change, not in his benevolence, but in his judicial attitude. In other words, there is reconciliation with him. Because that which has impeded our relationship has been removed. He hasn't ceased loving righteousness or, or just decided that even though we're sinners, he loves us too much to send us to hell. Rather, he's already poured out now at this stage of the argument, he's already poured out his wrath on Jesus for the sins of all who believe. We've been justified by faith. So the just demand of his holiness has been met and met in Christ. So since our sin has been dealt with justly, he would be unjust to demand further payment. 
Think of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and what? Just. He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He would be unjust if he didn't declare us clean and righteous as we confess our sins in Christ. No double jeopardy with God. When sin has been cared for, it has been removed. His wrath has been appeased. We've received his salvation. We have peace with him through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that peace is rooted in his righteousness, his justice. Remember those two words come from the same root. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and that peace is rooted in his righteousness. It's rooted in his justice. His justice made a demand, and the demand of his justice was met. And as a result, we can be granted salvation by faith. We can be granted reconciliation with God. So that peace is rooted in his righteousness, and that makes it just as irreversible as his righteousness. Our salvation is as good, not as our obedience in response to receiving it. Our salvation is as good as the righteousness of the God who has granted it. Is that good news this morning? Our salvation is rooted in the righteousness of Christ which is unyielding and unswerving and unbreakable. And in it, we have received peace with God. A peace treaty established between us and Him that is written in the very blood of His Son. That's where Paul begins. And we're still in verse 1. Verse 2, through Christ we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Access by faith to grace. With all the relief that comes from knowing we're at peace with God and processing that and seeing what's accomplished by it, with all the relief that comes from knowing we're at peace with God, avoiding judgment is not all we crave from Him. We want more than just freedom from judgment. And fortunately, he offers much more than mere avoidance of judgment. God the judge equips us. In verse 1, we're declared not guilty. We're at peace with him. God the judge who equips us in verse 1 becomes the father who lets us out of the doghouse in verse 2. He allows us to enter into his good grace, or we might even say his good graces. He accepts us. Through faith, we gain access to his grace, which is his good favor. We stand in favor before God, and there we stand. That's our new place. That's the ground we stand on. We use that as a metaphor for What's true and what's reliable? Well, what's true and what's reliable is that we've gained access by faith into grace, all the grace of God. In short, not only do we get, not get the spanking 
We're not even grounded. That's what we have as we move from verse 1 to verse 2. Not only do we not get the spanking, we're not even grounded. Rather, we enter into the fullness of all of His blessings in Christ, and we enter into them by faith in Him. Those blessings are listed. That's the opening of His letter to the church in Ephesus. Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And then He begins to list the blessings from the Father, the blessings from the Son, the blessings from the Spirit. We've entered into His grace by faith and receive all of that blessing, all of the blessing that God has at His disposal, which is limitless, is ours in Christ. Access by faith to grace. That's the second one. Then, with our immediate needs addressed, we have peace with God, we receive His grace and all of the abundant blessings that come along with it. With our immediate needs addressed, we can enjoy the luxury of focusing on the future with unmistakable confidence that the promised outcome is certain. That's what comes next. We can enjoy the luxury of focusing on the future, the scariest reality to all humanity, focusing on the future with unshakable confidence that the promised outcome is certain. That's joyful hope of God's glory. Finding ourselves in a new relationship marked by limitless grace that will ultimately enable us to be free from sin altogether. Let that sink in. That's just the first half of the sentence. That's the protasis, not the apotasis to use that, that with all of that in place, finding ourselves in a new relationship marked by limitless grace that will ultimately enable us to be free of sin altogether, we're essentially set free to pursue as much of that blessing as we can experience while still living in a world and in a body that is bent on sinning. So, even while we're still in the flesh, even while we're still in a fallen world, because of what we have received in Christ, we are set free in our spirits to pursue as much of the blessing of our future salvation as in our present reality we could process. My friends, that's what we're praying as a church together. We would know the fullness of what Jesus died for us to experience as believers this side of heaven before we step into his presence and are finally free of sin. That's what we long for together. What does body life in the church look like? I don't know. I don't think you do either. We have to keep asking God for that. That's where that blessing comes from, and that's what we pray for together. We pray for this joyful hope of God's glory. even while we're still in sinful bodies. So how does this work? Simply put, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as the writer of Hebrews said, the author and the pioneer of our faith, then as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 
We are changed into His image from one degree of glory to another. We have the joyful hope of the glory of God. Surely, that is an ultimate reality on which our hope is set. Entering in the fullness of God's glory. In fact, it's a virtual metaphor for heaven in the previous generation. You don't hear many people say these days we're headed for glory. But when you hear them say it, they're talking about heaven. Our eternal destiny because of the salvation that is ours in Christ. But you know what? We're being transformed into His likeness from one degree of glory to another as our eyes are fixed upon Him in this present sinful and broken world. We're getting a head start in the direction that we're going. We're, we're starting to climb up the ladder that's leaning against the wall of God's glory. As our eyes are fixed on Him, we're increasingly changed into him, His image from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3.18, that which we fall so woefully short of on our own, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. On our own, this is unattainable to us. We can't get there. But by faith in Christ, that which we fall so woefully short of on our own, we receive in abundance, increasing measure, through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God and actually begin to attain it. That's stunning. Yes. Isn't that stunning? I'm sure you were so stunned that you didn't even recognize that a potentially rhetorical question was actual, right? I do think at times it's not our practice to have dialogical preaching as is present in some traditions of the church, but from time to time a verbal response is all that we've got and the best we could offer. And God help us that we not give the best we can offer. Sometimes my questions aren't rhetorical. <laughs> This hope of the glory of God that is ours by faith in Christ, standing in such diametric contrast to our place without Him, is actually strengthened through sufferings. And that's the next blessing, number four, verses three and four. Strengthened hope through sufferings. Martin Luther wrote concerning this passage, since God has justified us by faith and not works, we have peace with Him both in heart and conscience, though not with man, nor with the flesh, nor with the devil. Believers rather have all the more trials in this life. That's how Luther put it, and I think we can say a hearty amen to that. Since God has justified us by faith, not by works, we have peace with him both in heart and in conscience, though not with man or with the flesh nor with the devil. Believers, rather, have all the more trials. We can't miss this. But you know what we also have? And Romans is the letter that makes it clear beyond any other. And we're not done with it. We'll, we'll circle back to this subject again and again through the remainder of this letter. 
Because of what we have in Christ, even our sufferings are working for our good. Here, they're working to strengthen the hope that we have in a fully delivered final salvation that frees us from sin. These trials, this suffering that Paul refers to here, doesn't undo our peace. It doesn't remove us from grace. It doesn't rob us of hope. Rather, it produces endurance in faith and then character, which just strengthens our hope produces a whole new kind of hope, a whole new quality of hope. And this hope is not just an anticipation of future blessings, as we've said, but a confidence and a courage that our actions, our behavior, our thoughts, our attitudes, our experiences will truly grow to reflect more and more clearly the character of the one who gave his life for us through all of those experiences and in all of those areas, we will grow to reflect more and more clearly the character of the one who gave his life for us. We will begin to reflect his glory more and more. Sufferings are not wasted. They're the school of faith. And in this passage, the school of hope. And we won't be disappointed by this hope. We won't get to a place where we realize, wow, my hope was strengthened, but it wasn't fulfilled. We will not get to that place. And Paul tells us why in the very next verse, verse 5. We will not be disappointed by this hope. It will not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There's not a way to capture what that means to us. It's simple enough to state what happens. There's no way to quantify what's accomplished by it. The third person of the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Son from eternity past, three persons eternally existing in loving, harmonious community with one another, creating this world in order to enjoy that fellowship with image-bearing creatures The third person of the Trinity has been given to us as God's own reassurance that our hope will be realized, that it will not be disappointed, that we will not be ashamed for having held it. The Holy Spirit of God is given to us for that purpose. Your hope will not disappoint. How do you know? God is the very promise and pledge. God the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like an engagement ring from God the Son, assuring His bride that He will not leave her at the altar. So just as that token 
is a recognizable image in our day that says, wow, a promise has been made and it will be fulfilled. It's as good and valuable and precious as the stone that's on her finger. That's what the church receives in the Holy Spirit. The promise that our hope will not disappoint. We will not be ashamed. We will not be standing there dressed in white on the wedding day and the groom not appear. It's not hard to understand why that's where Paul placed his interlude and his repetition of the gospel. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person. One would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He made these promises and put the token on our finger all at the same time while we were still in our sins. And that is what made us alive to receive His grace. It's an amazing image of this in the Old Testament prophets of Israel being abandoned at birth and growing up like an animal and yet been loved by God into purity and holiness. That's the picture of Ephesians as the image is completed. Christ takes his dead and dirty bride from chapter 2 and turns her into a shining manifestation of his grace in chapter 5, setting the model for how husbands are to love their wives. But we see the ultimate bridegroom doing it. In verses 6 through 8 here, the work of the gospel through the death of Christ is reviewed then one more time. The text means exactly what it says without much subtle embellishment hiding just below the, the surface. It is a picture in summary of grace, which is getting what we don't deserve and mercy, which is not getting what we do deserve. It's a picture of these two, and in Titus chapter 3, we see another spirit-inspired commentary on this same truth using expanded terminology that just echoes our passage here from Romans 5. I actually think it's worth turning over there and seeing this on the page with me. Turn over to Titus 3 for just a moment. Keep your finger in Romans 5. We'll only be over there for a minute. But we need to see this on the page, how Paul, writing to Titus, who's ministering in Crete, is explaining and embellishing the gospel in very similar terms, in terms that help us understand and appreciate what we're reading here in Romans 5. It's page 998 in your pew Bible, if you need that. Titus 3, verses 3 through 7. 
For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Romans 3, Romans 2, Romans 1. But, Romans 3, 21, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. How many points of intersection are present between Romans 5, 1 to 11? And Titus 3, 3 through 7. Mark that in your scriptures. Parallel passages that each one helps us understand the other a little better. And they are the gospel. So with that, we move through the interlude. But the blessings just keep on coming. Verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The blessing of propitiation from 325 returns to the spotlight here in chapter 5, verse 9. But here we're under the topic sentence that appears in 5.1. We're in that new place of looking at the same reality from a somewhat different angle. And verse 9 here is almost the same language in structure as verse 1, the topic sentence. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that's how verse 1 started. It's restated here in verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. The focus simply moves from how we receive justification to what achieves our justification. How we receive our justification, 5.1, by faith. How our justification is achieved, 5.9, by His blood. And since it is achieved by the shedding of Jesus' blood, by His sacrifice for us, our sin problem has been addressed God's wrath has been absorbed on our behalf. We've been saved from it. Almost certainly meaning ultimately at the final judgment. We're increasingly saved by it even as we're increasingly transformed into his likeness. But what's being focused on here, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. He's talking about the day that the wrath of God will be poured out and we will be saved from it on that day. But our anticipation of it builds even now. Moving on. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, verse 10. That verse continues on, but we're going to take it in two halves. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. We're going to look at the first half of it first. For if while... We were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. 
We can see here now a parallelism. We just looked at a parallelism between verse 9 and verse 1. Here we look at a parallelism between verse 10 and verse 9. So Paul's using this structure again and again in this argument. Doug Moo wrote here, the parallelism between verse 10 and verse 9 renders the differences between them all the more significant. And I would say amen, it surely does. We saw the contrast between, uh, between faith and blood in 1 and 9. Now we see a different contrast. The parallelism makes the differences easy to see. And the key difference here is Paul's move from justified to reconciled. Justified in verse 9 to reconciled in verse 10. And his description of our standing before God. So he's moving from our judicial standing to our relational standing. He's moving from our judicial standing of judicial standing of acquitted of all guilt by faith in Christ, not guilty, at peace with God, to our relational standing, restored from mutual hostility to peace. We're reconciled. Mu went on to write, the language of reconciliation is seldom used in other religions. It's seldom used because the relationship between human beings and the deity is not conceived there in the personal categories for which the language of reconciliation is appropriate. What he's telling us is no other religion of the world that speaks of a reconciliation between humanity, human beings, and the God they are trying to appease. Paul moves here from our being justified, declared not guilty before that God, to a place of understanding that we actually have a restored personal relationship with Him. And all of this is accomplished for us by the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, the Son of God, our Lord and Savior. But that actually moves us on into the second half of verse 10 a little prematurely. This reconciliation is accomplished by the death of Christ because that's where the wrath of God is absorbed and the sin in our hearts is removed. That's where the propitiation is granted. But then he moves on in the second half of the verse to talk about life. And this next one, salvation through Jesus' life, moves us into the second half of 10, but it also extends into verse 11. So let's read 10, the on-ramp. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Now, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Here is where the resurrection enters the picture. We're saved by His life. We are freed from sin and from death. The completion of Jesus' work that accomplishes our reconciliation. And so, in summary of all He's written thus far... It accomplishes our salvation. Our salvation is finished by the resurrection of Jesus after his death has absorbed the wrath of God for all who believe. 
And this salvation leads to our bottom line and our very present joy in the saving work of Christ. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We rejoice in God. There's the final fruit that we're identifying this morning. And we also see here that we are reconciled to God now. So, in verse 1, God was reconciled to us. That was in the spotlight. As we grasp the implications of having peace with Him as a result of that, now we're turning the picture to being reconciled to Him. And that brings about rejoicing. Rejoicing in us. That's why it's a joy to be together with the body of Christ and to sing His praises and to celebrate His supper. Could there be a better description of all that Jesus accomplished for those whose faith is fixed in Him? A better briefer statement anywhere than what we see in these first 11 verses of Romans 5. All He provided that's wrapped together in this word salvation saved from verse 10, that's the finishing picture of what this whole thing is talking about. Taking it out in its component parts and looking at all the fruit that's come all along the way and finishing it with a picture of our salvation, that which we receive by faith in Christ. It is so much more than the people understood as they called out, save us now, Hosanna! So much more. They knew the promises, but they didn't understand what was required in order to accomplish the fulfillment of those promises. Are all the fulfillment would entail as they receive it. They had no idea. We want to be free from Rome. The king is here. Save us now. Deliver us so that we can live on forever in our sin. The joy of mere political deliverance was enough to have them shouting in the streets and laying their coats on the road before the promised king. Now we hear through this letter what it was they actually longed for what it was they actually needed. And thank God that Jesus entered Jerusalem that day on a donkey and not on a white horse. That's grace. That is grace. Paul explains it here. And he does so in such vivid language, talking about that salvation that surely we today can leave here saying, Hallelujah. Blessed is he who has come in the name of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And as we pray, musicians, please return to the front and communion servers as well. Heavenly Father, it truly is an amazing thing 
say that we have peace with God. And I would say that even for those of us who have received it by faith in Christ, we read through a passage like Romans 5, 1 to 11, and we think, wow, those things have not entered my mind or heart for a while. Lord God, by your grace, please, please hold them there. Help me to grasp these descriptions and this understanding and this salvation that is mine in Christ. Father, help me to reflect on it and process what it means for me. Help me to find the joy and the refreshment of spirit that comes through faith in Christ. And help me hold on to it long enough to take it out into the world tomorrow morning and live differently, live as I should have been living all along because of the salvation that is mine in Christ. Father, give me opportunities to share this with someone. Help me to speak freely about the, the celebrations of this week and what they entail, what they purchase for us, what they promise us, and then give us the very person of God himself in assurance to strengthen our faith and our hope that the promises far too good to be understood will still be fulfilled according to your own righteousness and holiness and mercy and grace. And now, Father, as we remember our Lord's death, may it again, by your grace, be with deepened appreciation for what he accomplished for us and renewed understanding of what it actually means to remember. In Jesus' name, amen.